Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're so accustomed to believe that it's not that bad. Nothing's going to happen. And even if it was bad, I'll be able to escape it. Welcome to episode 48 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails, what led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chan, and this week we'll be looking at the discount drugstore chain Farmore. In 1992, a travel agent was tasked with booking flights for a basketball team. They were on their way to compete in an upcoming tournament. The team was from the World Basketball League, a league founded by entrepreneur Michael Mickey Monis, who was president of the wildly successful pharmacy retail chain Farmore. However, something caught the agent's eye when she was finalizing the travel plans. It was the payment that she received from Monas to cover the expenses, a $75,000 check made out from Farmore's bank account. That detail struck her as odd, but as luck would have it, she was also a close acquaintance of one of the Farmore's major investors. After briefly contemplating the situation, she decided to share this bit of information with him. What she didn't realize was that her actions were about to uncover and expose a $1 billion fraud and take down one of the nation's largest retail chains. Welcome to the story of the pharmacy retail chain Farmore. From savior to misbehavior. This week, we're doing a special episode on a financial accounting scandal that was one of the biggest swindles of its time. We hear about companies and financial misconduct pretty frequently. Stories of cooked books, misappropriated funds are hardly rare, but often leaves me questioning, how do companies manage to pull these things off? And more importantly, how do they get past trained professionals, auditors, and investors? In this episode, we'll be featuring a special guest, Professor Kelly Richmond Pope of DePaul University, who's a forensic accounting expert with a specialty in corporate crimes, and she'll be helping us break things down. Get ready to hear about the most scandalous retail pharmacy chain of all time. That was Farmore. I remember Farmore, actually. I mean, I may be dating myself, but it was this discount warehouse of just 
all kinds of stuff. So it, imagine like a discount convenience store splashed into a pharmacy with a little bit of like a Target or a CVS. Like it was that. And so it was this, it was, you would see like these massive amounts of product. So say you wanted Tide. There was like hundreds and hundreds of Tide everywhere. And they were for this, these really low prices. And I remember um, in my community, um, I'm from North Carolina, I remember there being a farm in Raleigh. And Raleigh was far from my hometown, which is Durham. But it was worth the drive because the prices were so low. And you could get candies, like bulks of candies and gum that you might get at a convenience store. But you would get it at Farmore for a lot cheaper and in mass. The year was 1982 when the first Farmore came on the scene. It was an extremely successful pharmacy retail chain that experienced a tremendous surge in growth in a short period of time. From 1985 to 1992, its 15 stores grew into over 300 stores in 32 states. Farmore wasn't just your ordinary pharmacy retail chain. It was ahead of its time, doing innovative things that challenged the industry's existing standards. So much so that Sam Walton, Walmart's founder, has gone on record saying that that was the most threatened he had ever been by another retail chain. Now, before we can truly understand Farmore, we need to go back to where it all started, Youngston, Ohio. Youngston had been a thriving town since the 1800s, which was due to the land's large deposits of iron and coal. By the turn of the 20th century, local industrialists began to convert to steel manufacturing, and the area was booming with some of the nation's most important regional steel producers. Unfortunately, by the late 70s, the area was struggling. One of the largest steel companies pulled out of Youngston killing over 5,000 jobs and creating a ripple effect that damaged the city, reducing the population by nearly half as desperate residents left to seek out other opportunities. It was devastating to the city and for a while, it was like a ghost town. And then in 1982, Mickey Monis and his partner, David Shapira, came into the picture with a concept for a specialty pharmacy store a business that grew rapidly, creating tons of jobs and making Monis somewhat of a local hero. Aside from that, Monis was also contributing to the civic and charitable causes. In addition to that philanthropy, Monis was also a huge sports fan and launched a professional basketball league called the World Basketball League. And in just a few short years, Youngston had gone from bust to boom. With sales eclipsing $3 billion and growing, far more success was enough to send shockwaves within the retail sector. Now, what made Farmore so powerful was their knack for innovative merchandising. Fueled by their relentless, bare-knuckle negotiation tactics with suppliers, their key to success was a strategy created by Monas himself, a legendary negotiator, and it was called power buying, which was essentially the practice of buying a bunch of items in bulk prices and offering them at lower cost to their shoppers. But Monas would make these deals with suppliers to sell their products at exclusive discounts, attracting many price-conscious shoppers, and in turn, driving sales through the roof. 
Not everyone liked it, though. The strategy put mom-and-pop stores out of business, rendering them unable to compete with Farmore's prices. But on the other side of the coin, investors and investment bankers saw dollar signs and were essentially begging the company to go public. Farmore was uh, the precursor to what we know of today as a Costco. And so because they would buy in bulk and they would offer such discounts, they would pass that discount on to their customers. Part of the magic in Farmore's deals was offering exclusivity on their shelving space in exchange for a discounted price. For example, there might be multiple soda brands on a competitor retailer's shelves, but Farmore would strike a deal with just one major brand, like a Coca-Cola, and stock that brand exclusively for an unprecedented discount price. This was an attractive proposition to the brand as they would have dominance in far more stores and far more would get a price so low it would drive customers to its stores. This would leave competitors scratching their heads when they saw Farmore's ability to offer such rock bottom prices. But soon that wouldn't be the only thing hitting rock bottom. Let's take things back to where we first started with the World Basketball League travel plans and that suspicious check. When the key investor got wind of the travel expenses that Farmore was covering for the WBL, it proved to be the first domino in a series of events that spun into an investigation which uncovered a massive fraud. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There was a um, payment for travel expenses um, that that um, somehow landed in the hands of an investor with far more. Now, how that how that payment got in his hands, I'm not sure, but that was really the straw that started to break the camel's back because then people started asking questions, and that's really how it how it started, and so. When, the, when questions started happening, it was revealed that he had embezzled that $10 million for the league and stores started closing, construction on stores that were in process were just stopped and an investigation started. So sometimes it can be something that you least suspect that can unravel a fraud. What was revealed were some of the most egregious crooked forms of accounting. 
Here, Professor Pope breaks down for us what was going on behind the scenes for so many years in the corporate offices of Farmore. Mickey Mellness was like a lot of CEOs who want to just win, win, win and not admit failure. You know, he fit that profile. And so what was two things were his undoing. One, lying, <laughs> which is which is what a lot of what some CEOs can do. And then two, his passion for sports and investing money from um, far more, taking some of those profits and investing into a sports team. And at the time, it was he was investing in the World Basketball League, and um, that ended up being a problem because taking money out of your business to sink it into this uh, league you wanted to start and co-mingling the funds means means that your business is, is needing those funds and you removed it. So I think that created um, a problem. And so when Farmore was struggling and he told his CFO, hide, hide the debt, hide the losses, that was their undoing. It was also discovered that since the company's inception in 1982 and during their massive expansion that began in 1985, it wasn't making as much money as everyone thought. In fact, Farmore never generated a profit after 1987. And because Monus and other executives weren't upfront about the losses, they created a web of lies and cover-ups using some very imaginative accounting. Now, one of the things they did to conceal millions of dollars of losses was charge expenses as inventory costs. Say, for instance, Farmore had a $1 million in losses. They would spread that out between their 300 stores so that the loss would appear to be much smaller. Now, instead of recording them as losses, which they were, the accounting department would record them as an expense for inventory inventory it did not have. Anyone looking at the financials would make the assumption that Farmore's warehouses were stacked with products, when in reality, Farmore's consumers were oftentimes staring at empty shelves just assuming that things were sold out because the company was doing so well. What um, Monus and his team was able to do was figure out a way to manipulate their financial statements and, and use loopholes and generally accepted accounting principles to really make their financial statements, their balance sheet, their income statement look better than it actually was in a particular uh, quarter. And that's why people kept investing in it and putting more and more money into the company and why they were able to grow so fast because the outside world thought it was this super profitable company because it was propped up on lies. Another part of the fraud was hiding Monus's extracurricular activities, including trying to prop up his failing basketball league by embezzling $10 million from Farmore's investors. To the outside world, Farmore was generating billions of dollars in revenue. The reputation of success continued to snowball, and as a result, investors were eager to get in on the action, injecting more than $1.14 billion to help support the growth. From Westinghouse, Sears Roebuck, to investment bank Lazard. But despite reporting billions in annual sales, the company wasn't even able to pay their suppliers. Now, in order to understand how companies commit fraud, you need to first get the foundation of how accounting works. A technical book can look like a number of things. And so one of the things I want to say is remember that 
in accounting, we follow something called generally accepted accounting principles. And so I wanted to spell that out. We, we like to refer to it as GAP, but generally accepted accounting principles. And generally accepted gives you a level of subjectivity in, in, the, in what you decide to, to use and how you report your financials to the outside world. So that being said, you are not supposed to spread losses over a period of time, just like you're not supposed to spread revenue over a period of time. So there's something called the revenue recognition principle. And what that says is we recognize revenue when earned and expenses when incurred. And so if you earned $50 $50 million in quarter one, then that's what you're supposed to recognize. And so a lot of times companies will try to manage their earnings by saying, we we had a really good quarter, but we don't want to release all those earnings in that quarter because what if we have a bad quarter two, quarter three, quarter four? How about we just sort of hold some of this in a reserve and let it out or release it over time? Well, you're not supposed to do that because it's misleading to investors. If you had a bad quarter and you're just pumping up your revenue because you're releasing it out of a reserve and it wasn't due to sales, then that's misleading. Statistics show that many times when management teams commit fraud, they don't do so intentionally from the beginning. They may feel compelled from outside environments to deliver results that top their previous quarter or experience pressure from others to demonstrate stellar financials. But in this case, the scheme lasted so long because many people were part of the fraud, including Patrick Finn, Farmore's CFO. There were also so many complicit parties that worked together in collusion. The president, the CEO, the COO, the VP of marketing, the director of accounting, the controller, and so many more key figures. It was a well-orchestrated effort that enveloped nearly the entire company. And in this case, here's the how. So think about the whole old analogy, robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's essentially what was happening. So there were red flags, but the problem is you only, some red flags you only can tell in the aftermath. It, it's hard to sometimes put two and two together. So yeah, there were, um, they said that they had annual sales, but they couldn't pay their suppliers. Who, who could be able to put that picture together to understand that there was a problem? So in order to put a fraud scenario together, you have to have all the pieces at the same time looking at you at the same time. And so the reason why this was able to happen is because you didn't have all those pieces at the same time to read the the fraud story. But what were some of the red flags? Accounting fraud can easily happen when you have a complicit CEO and CFO. And so when the CFO decides I'm going to hide um, losses because my CEO told me to do it, then what you're portraying to the outside world is false. So some of the red flags that we can look back now and talk about was the fact that their suppliers weren't getting paid timely. So at times, you would find that there were empty shelves in Farmore. And that seems to be a red flag. But as a consumer, you might not know it. And as an investor, you might not know it either because the the books are cooked. So you're painting a picture that you want people to see. Well, because their books look profitable, 
they were able to receive investment. So people were just putting, piling money into Farmall to, to, to allow it to grow. And what Monis and the CFO did is they were able to use the investments that, that they were receiving in order to pay suppliers. And that's not what you were supposed to be doing. You were supposed to be investing in the operations to help the operations grow, not to allow them to conceal losses Ultimately, the charade couldn't last forever. In 1992, Farmore filed for bankruptcy protection, closing 55 stores and laying off 5,000 workers. Mickey Monis received a 19-and-a-half-year sentence for the accounting fraud that inflated Farmore's shareholder equity by $500 million, resulting in over a billion dollars in losses. And Finn, who cooperated with authorities, was sentenced to 33 months for the role that he played in all of this. Lawsuits were filed against Coopers and Librand, Farmore's independent auditors, for being reckless in performing their audits. We train children to believe that when a fire alarm goes off, you get out of the building. We've gotten so accustomed to saying, there's no fire, it's fine. It's probably just a false alarm. But what if it's not? You're gonna burn up and die, right? But we've been, we're so accustomed to believe that it's not that bad. Nothing's gonna happen. And even if it was that, I'll be able to escape it. So there's a mindset, I think, just inherent in the way we think about things, that if there is a bad day, a good day is coming. If there are losses, we will be able to make up for those losses at at another time. It'll get better. So Monas and team, they're thinking around, yeah, we're experiencing these losses. we'll, we'll, We'll make it up later. That's the way I think a lot of us think. Of course, Monas and company benefited from something else, too. Sometimes people suspend their beliefs and concerns when they want something to be true, even if deep down they know it's not. People wanted to believe in it. So once you want to believe in something, you will believe in it. So I think he had already established uh, credibility. And, you know, he went into a town that was a steel a steel industry town that lost a lot of jobs. So here you see this Superman type character coming in to provide more jobs to a struggling town. Everybody wanted to believe in that. And so he had the people naturally on his side. So what were the takeaways here? Could there have been some signs along the way? And what can we learn from this? Yeah, I think that, one, um, your sales numbers should have matched. There should have been a correlation or a story around sales and inventory. So you shouldn't have empty shelves if you have millions and billions in sales. There's a disconnect there. And so, again, you have to be able to put all the pieces to understand the story. The tough part for an investor is if a company is lying about the transactions, then you need to go look at the notes to the financial statements and see if what they're saying matches how they're depicting the company. And sometimes that can be hard. It takes some digging. So a non-accountant type person may not dig this way. And so this is why I think it's really important for every investment team to have like a forensic accountant. And and you think about forensic accounting can be preventative 
um, like you can you can you can look and have and think about okay once there's a fraud we call them in but think about if we use them on the front end I'm thinking about investing in this company I want you to take a look at their financials and tell me if you notice any anomalies dig through it what if we did that as a way um, to be proactive instead of reactive you hear about Enron WorldCom Lehman Brothers and of course Bernie Madoff and wonder how does this keep happening the damage from accounting scandals extend beyond shareholders and employees affecting local and global economies as well as the accounting industry Here are some facts released by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners that identify three of the most common forms of accounting fraud. 85% of all corporate fraud cases are due to asset misappropriation, like stealing. 43% of all corporate fraud cases are due to corruption, such as misuse of power and authority. And 10% of corporate fraud cases are due to financial statement fraud, like in this case, incorrect or omitted information. Now, what's intriguing to me is that only 4% of these nefarious, flagrant crimes were uncovered by external auditors. 4%. 5% are revealed by accident, like in this case. And what's so profound to me is that someone is statistically more likely to discover the sham by chance than an auditor is to uncover them. There's something particularly hard to digest about that. Forensic accounting, I think, as a field, has always been a reactive. When there's a problem, you call people in to look at the books. But what if we put that at the front and we have people look at the books at the beginning? You're thinking about investing in a company. Get a forensic accounting group to do your due diligence. Not when there's a problem. So I think that that would be my piece of advice is incorporating somebody that digs for fraud at the beginning because it's things that you might not even be looking for especially if you are excited about acquiring a company if you're excited about investing in a company you're going to be biased in favor of this so you want that unbiased eye to be able to come in and sort of throw the financials at the wall and figure out all the things that would be wrong in the end far more not only gave their customers a great bargain They also gave their investors far more than what they bargained for. Special thanks to Professor Kelly Richmond-Pope for her contributions to this episode and sharing her forensic analysis and insights on what led to the downfall of far more. And thank you for tuning in this week to The Great Fail, a program that spotlights some of the most infamous case studies of failed businesses, brands, and ideas, and goes beyond that to garner lessons and wisdom so that we all can learn from the greatest mistakes. The Great Fail is part of the Adweek Podcast Network and ACAST Creator Network. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of these episodes would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Connect with us at The Great Fail on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that we can continue bringing you more episodes. And remember, with great failure comes great liability. I must confess. I did what I did, now my life's a mess. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.